Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 21st, 2019. This is episode 2534 of the Survival Podcast. And I have got a great one for you today. It's a listener feedback show. That means you guys basically wrote the outline of this show for me by sending your emails to jack at the survival podcast.com. Here's what I got for you guys today. I'm going to start off with a quote of the day I think you're going to really like by author unknown. I don't know who Unknown is, but Unknown writes some pretty cool stuff. Uh, more proof that the university system is starting to collapse. I'm going to give you two pieces of information. One, the guy that sent it to me, the, the one of the two pieces of information seems a little outdated because it's from two years ago. So I looked it up, and it, the trend has just continued. And it's pretty amazing what's happened over the last eight years while I've been saying the university system is going to implode and people have been saying, Jack, you're crazy, you're hysterical, you're a doomsday prepper when it comes to uh, the school system. It's going to be fine. We'll always have it. It's not going to change. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, I got conclusive proof here that the uh, Spirkadamus prediction for the university system is beginning to happen. And I would say it's actually beginning to accelerate. And it's probably another year or two before everybody starts freaking out and says we need to do something about it. Right now it's a denial-based system, but the acceptance, the reality, and it may even end up being a critical election issue for the next most important election of our lifetime. If you believe that, you probably believe the university system is not in trouble. Uh, next up, the ins and outs of buying and selling guns in private sales. Uh, question on taking a YouTube channel to the next level and building a lifestyle business to go with it. A lesson from an online bank outage. We recently talked about online banks where like, there is no physical location. I'll tell you why this lesson really doesn't pertain just to online banks. Thoughts on what type of silver American Eagle to buy for stacking silver. Uh, we're talking about reintroducing elk throughout the United States. Somebody sent me an article on that because of some comments I made about what happened to the bison and elk populations in the United States after Europeans got to the United States and people not understanding how widespread elk were in this country. Uh, there is a lot of reintroduction of elk. And, and, and a lot of places, like you'd never even think of, like Arkansas and Tennessee, Pennsylvania. But there's a real challenge there that most people just aren't going to understand. And we're going to talk about that today because there are some things we can't just put back the way they were. Or if we want to put them back... Some real hard decisions have to be made, and we'll talk about that. Before we get into that, let's remind you guys about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox.com. ButcherBox pays me in meat. I should be able to just say, go to ButcherBox, they pay me in meat, done. right? Because if I'm willing to accept product for advertising, it tells you something, especially product I get every month. ButcherBox keeps me well-fed on grass-fed meat, pastured pork, and pastured poultry. I gotta tell you, one of the things you might want to check out if you're a Butcher Box customer is their pork tenderloin. My, I made a pork tenderloin for my wife and I, not last night, the night before. Just a real simple thing, salt, pepper, garlic, a little bit of chili powder, and, uh, I did a, a marinade as well. Cut it into basically medallions. Then got the pan really, really hot, so even though it's a, a really lean cut of meat that can dry out easily, I can still get a decent char on it. I cooked it. My wife said, oh, my God, that was amazing. 
And she wanted to know what makes it so much better. So then yesterday we happened to be at Costco. And there's nothing wrong with Costco's meat or whatever. But, you know, they have organic meat at Costco. And they have just factory meat at Costco. And they had a, a package with a pork tenderloin in it. Actually, it was two pork tenderloins. But they were in two different packages, like a, a bubble-wrapped-together thing, uh, where you could see each one individually. And um, I said, well, this is a pork tenderloin from a commercially piece, produced piece of pork. And she said, what, are there four there? And I said, no, it's two, two and, and one and one. They're folded in half. She goes, they're, they're twice the size of the one that you cooked. I said, absolutely. I said, look at the color. She goes, it's almost white. The one you cooked almost looked like beef. Exactly. That's the quality you get from Butcher Box. Check them out, and those pork tenderloins are amazing. And again, if you want to know how much I endorse them, I get a box of meat every month in return for my endorsement of Butcher Box. That tells you everything. If you are an MSB member, you can save $10 a month, $10 a month on your monthly box, or $120 a year. So, yeah, they're a good supporter with a great product. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Jeff has been with this show as a sponsor for nine-plus years now. Nine-plus years he supported this show. Water is so critical to your survival and your health. And I think that the best bang for your buck in water filtration is a Berkey system. But I'm not going to buy my Berkey or my Berkey parts from somebody at a gun show who got into prepping yesterday because their brother-in-law said it was a good market. I go to the original, the only true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason, and his website, Directive 21, and you should too. And if you're an MSP member, get your discounts when you buy from the Berkey Guy. You can find it in the MSP in the benefits section. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. I want to start out with my quote of the day. You know, I have to say I'm really enjoying doing the quote of the day, maybe more than any of the other intro segments that we've ever done. You know, way back in the day, I'm talking double-digit episodes. We, we did a thing called Ask Clowns and Heroes for a while. Of course, we had various versions of the history segment and stuff like that. But the quote of the day just seems like a really easy one for me to manage, and we can come up with some really insightful things out of it. And it's really easy for me, uh, not necessarily today, but on any given day, to find a quote that fits the episode. So here's the quote of the day that I have for you today, again, by author Unknown. I don't know who Unknown is, but Unknown does some good things. Now, there's actually a few people that are credited with this, and I was unable to, to actually verify the source. Everyone from great literary figures to people like Leonardo DiCaprio has claimed to have done this, and I don't know who really did. But I love the quote. It actually makes me think of an author I know didn't, didn't say it, uh, but said it many different ways, Richard Bach. And it is... Every next level of your life will demand a different you. Uh, if you actually want to do something totally unique, totally new, totally a growth thing, a to totally an evolution of what you've done in the past, to move to a new level of performance, a new level of reality, a new level of anything, then you need a whole new you to go with it. The good news is you can create a new you almost on the fly with the right attitude. In fact, attitude is 90% of everything. 10% is what you do. 90% of it is how you think about it and the attitude you have about it. Because it's the brain that makes the body do the thing, right? You, it's, it's not like there is, you can't take a robot and program it to live a good life and have it become a successful entrepreneur. It can do stuff, but it's the mind and the adaptation and the attitude. And if you want to move to a new level, you need a new you. Every time. 
every time. That really fits the song we had last week from the Almond Brothers of Seven Turns. Each one of those turns in the Navajo legend that there's a, a, a seven major events in a person's life where they have to make the right decision. That decision, if there's any truth to that myth, is one that results in changing who you really are. For the better or for the worse, it's up to you. Every level in your life will demand a different you. Author unknown. If you can uh, cite, a, cite a, quote, a source on that quote for me and actually you know, provide me documentation that says, hey, this suit really was, I'll, I'll give the right person credit for it, maybe even take another look at it. So before we get into uh, your feedback, I want to um, remind you, I'm trying to put together a um, life hacks episode. All little things that we can do to make our life a little bit better, a little bit easier. But if you just send me an email with TSPC hack in the subject line, I'll uh, keep moving stuff into the folder. These are like anything you can do. Here, here's an example just to get your mind going in the right way. One of my hacks with sous vide cooking, for instance, is not just putting stuff away that's pre-seasoned and ready to be cooked, but actually throwing 10 steaks in the sous vide cooker cooking them to my preferred temperature, labeling a Ziploc bag with that steak in it, and then when it comes out, all i got to do is sear it off and it's ready to eat. That's just one example. And there's a, a ton of stuff like this in, in, in our lives. Um, you know, So what are your little ways that you make your life a little bit easier? What are your life hacks to contribute to the life hack episode? Uh, that might be next week. We might do it after the workshop. depends on how many come in. We've got a good amount of them. But I want a ton because they're all simple little things. They don't require a lot of discussion or explanation. So the more the better and uh, get them on into me. So let's get into uh, this concept of the university system. And, and I believe public education as a whole, the, the entire school system is on the verge of collapse. Now, verge is you know, 10, 20 years. Uh, it's not tomorrow. But it, it really, I do feel that we're evolving to a point where we are using an outdated method of education But the university system being as expensive as it is and delivering so little for what it's charging at this point for the vast majority of people partaking in it, it's an accelerated collapse. Now, why do I say that I have proof of this and proof of it accelerating? Well, I'll let you read your uh, read the articles yourself if you want to. But Jason from PA, who sends me a lot of great stuff, sent me uh, two articles. And here's the just the short version of them, and then we're going to talk about what it means. This year, 40% of American systems of higher education universities have lowered their SAT and ACT entrance requirement. So they have said you can be dumber and still get in. And if you read it, they try to make the excuses that they've determined that you know SAT and ACT scores are directly linked to family income levels. And people that grow up in poorer households score worse on the test, not because they don't know as much, but because the test is evil and racist and unfair. And if you have less money, you're going to score worse on an ACT or an SAT. Now, that's, that's not why they're doing it. Now... Jason sent me a second article, but when I checked it out, it turns out this article's two years old. It's from 2017. College enrollments in the United States have declined for the sixth straight year, although at a slower uh, rate, while the bachelor's degree got more popular. So people are going to school less. And this is 2017, and at that point it had been six years of lower College enrollments, six 
years, consecutive years. Does that when you have something happen for a quarter or two quarters and people try to say that it's a trend, we are looking at way too small of a data point set to determine if we actually have a trend yet. However, two quarters in an economy of lower than expected revenues, and we're talking, you know, if we go under a certain amount of GDP, uh, we, we call it a recession in just two quarters. This isn't six quarters, this is six years. But I thought, you know what, it's really important to you, Jack, that you, you're honest with people and you don't cherry pick your data. So surely you can find an article from 2019 that says if this trend has stopped or reversed, and the answer is it hasn't. So I have a second article you can look at it. Eight consecutive years. Eight consecutive years. That is an eternity in our modern world. Eight consecutive years, enrollments in universities have gone down. And now the universities are lowering the entrance requirements and making it easier to get in school because test scores are racist and, and, and against people of color and against people with less money. Do you, do you really believe that, or do you believe that people are just starting to wise up to the fact that going to college is not worth the investment for a lot of people that are going? Not everybody, a lot of people that are going. And I'm going to tell you, this is, this is dramatic that it's eight consecutive years. This is a big deal because the, the uh, high schools have upped the marketing propaganda that every child should go to college more than ever before. There is more pressure. I'm telling you right now, I have nieces and nephews in that age bracket. There is more pressure on kids to go to college by parents and the systems in, in play than there has ever been ever in the history of the United States. There's more pressure now than there was 10 years ago, 5 years ago. There's more pressure now than there was 20 years ago. And it's easier to get a student loan, and it's easier to get in the door, and even with all of that, less people are going. And on top of this, these enrollments include a lot of people that are going to college that shouldn't be. I have a sister-in-law. She's kind of nutty. She's on disability. She's going to college to get her master's degree in, 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 in uh, accounting. She just finished her bachelor's degree in accounting. She already had two years of college from like the 70s that she never went on to get a bachelor's. It took her like seven years of going to school part-time to complete two years of college. She's probably going to go to school for another seven years. She's never going to get a job. But the government's paying for her to go to school. There's tons of people that are counted in the enrollments that are people like that. And And... You know, and I, I mean, I'm not picking on her or nothing, but I'm just being honest here. This woman's in her 60s. She's in her 60s. She ain't had a job in 10 years. And she's going to college part-time to get a master's degree in accounting. And she counts as an enrollment. The, the, the system is literally on life support at this is the point. Now, let me explain something so that you don't think I'm being over the top on this. I think the university system in this country could shrink to about 60% of its current size, tighten up what it, what it takes to get into a university, reduce the cost of an education, and do quite well. And you're still talking about tens of millions of people in that system at any given time. You're not talking about going away and becoming nothing. But the system has become so big that it now requires growth to be stable while it's shrinking. And what we are headed for is a classic disruption scenario. 
when an alternative to a current solution can do better for less money, then you are primed for a massive disruption. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not putting down the entire concept of higher education. There are a whole list of jobs and careers that really, if you want to do them, not only is an education in higher education required on paper, it really is kind of required in practice. I don't want a person designing the structure of a bridge with a high school education. I don't. Now, can we get them a good engineering education without the current university system? We probably can, but for right now, it's probably the best place for them if they have the aptitude and the desire for that type of an education. But we have tons of people that are going into careers that do not require a degree with a degree. We have tons of people today that could be making seventy or 80000 with no college debt that are carrying college debt and making forty. if they've gone to a trade school or taken another path to educate themselves. We are way past the disruption. In fact, this is what you call it. We are now into the, the place of a full-on, artificially supported and artificially created market. There is no way the education system in America could be what it is today without government propaganda and government-backed debt. If you took away either of those, it would collapse tomorrow. If you took away both of those, it would have collapsed five to six years ago, at least. And probably it would have collapsed less hard because it would have been less inflated. This market isn't real. There is no world in which a degree in communications or liberal arts or gender studies is worth $80,000. I even had somebody write in to me about their uh, daughter got a degree in gender studies and she made it work. She actually has a decent career now. There's no world in which her career justified $80,000 for a gender studies degree or more. What, what she's doing, she could have done with a more marketable degree or no degree. She doesn't have the job she has because she has a gender studies degree. She has the job she has, I'm sorry, in spite of it. I don't remember all the particulars, but I remember when I read the scenario, I'm like, well, good for her, but... So we can't have a system that's charging students somewhere between ten and $30,000 a year for four years for degrees that have starting jobs with $40,000 in it without the intervention of the state propping up a failed system. You can't do it. But what do I always say about markets? Markets are going to market sooner or later. Sooner or later, the free market will tell you the truth. No matter how much intervention, no matter how much falsehood, no matter how much artificial debt, sooner or later, the market will market. And what you're getting now is 16- and 17-year-old kids that have grown up at a different age, in a different time. They've, they've seen what has happened to their siblings. They know the truth about this. They are learning the basics of how to use simple programs that we've had for 30 years like Microsoft Excel in school just enough that they are starting to run budgets and calculations and figuring out that this doesn't make sense. That this type of a system just doesn't work anymore for everyone. And they're starting to justify that against this propaganda of everybody should go. And it just I'm telling you, you can believe what you want, but when you have a system that is now making it easier than ever to get in the door of something that's supposed to be exclusive, while the price continues to rise, 
and purchasing of it continues to decline, the writing's on the wall. You can only you can only take the position that I'm wrong here because you don't want to believe that I'm right. No thinking person, no thinking person can take a logical look at this scenario. Declining enrollment, easing of uh, entrance, unlimited government money, a 40-year propaganda campaign being driven into kids, and more pressure than them than ever before to go get a degree in something, anything, no matter what it is, because you know you'll make more money if you do, and at the same time, the whole system waning over eight years. If you look at the, just don't have to get real granular, you just look at the totality of that. Imagine that this was a, a company, you were being asked, it's just a single company instead of a whole sector, and there was a company that made uh, electronic widgets of some sort, the Electronic Widgets, Inc., Uh, tick, ticker symbol EWI on the NASDAQ big board. Probably is a ticker symbol that. Don't go investing in it. Just making this up. Electronic Widgets Inc. And you said, well, you want me to buy into this company and invest some of my 401k into it. Well, how are they doing? Oh, they're doing great. Um, the government loans unlimited money to buy electronic widgets. And they tell all the kids in school that they need to get one of these widgets when they graduate. And you said, okay, well, that... that That sounds great. How are their sales? Well, they're really good. They're still selling a lot. No, 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 no. Wait, wait a minute. Wouldn't at that point you start going, wait, 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 wait. What? Why are you answering my question that way? Like, what is their trend in sales? Oh, they sell millions and millions of units every year. No, 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 no. What is their trend? Like, are they selling more this year than last year with all that going for them? Well, actually, you know, they actually sold a little less this year. But the business model is still really strong. P.E. ratio is great. You know, and they still have the gut. Well, hold on. Wouldn't you be like, well, well, hold on. When was the last year that they had an increase in their total sales? And they said, well, you know, it was uh, 2011. And you go, well, was 2011 like this really big year for them? You know, like a huge year that like was an artificial blip, and then you know it looks like they're selling less every year because we're comparing it to 2011. And then, no, um, they've actually gone down every year since 2011. Well, how good a year was 2011? It wasn't a very good year. They barely had growth in 2011. They had a little bit of growth in 2010, some significant growth in 2009. But you should invest in this corporation. If that was a financial advisor talking to you, wouldn't you be like, you know what, Jack's right, you guys are financial liars, you're fired, get out of here, don't ever talk to me again. I can't believe you're asking me to invest in this. Wouldn't you say that company, that company has a bleak future at this point, that the trend is clearly set. Okay, you can't change it just because it's college and you're attached to the idea. So, anyway, let's go to something totally different uh, on guns. Uh, hi, Jack. Any thoughts on buying and selling guns as a private individual? Two, do you know anything about Seiko rifles? I found an A5 and 458 Winchester magnet would have been custom. The barrel is not stamped with the chamber. There's no markings on the barrel at all. Any thoughts? 
The bore on the gun is huge. Uh, details, I came across an opportunity with a friend to buy five gun safes at an estate sale. We were able to see inside three of them quickly to get an idea. We purchased them for $10,000. Long story short, there were 63 guns in total. List is attached if you're interested. There were some things that made me chuckle, like handy rifle you always mention. There was a bunch of junk, but there was also some pretty badass stuff, too. My buddy and I have some concerns about selling person to person. Our thinking is if we sell a gun to someone that commits a crime, police follow the paper trail, they would eventually get to us, I assume. That is a bunch of liability and heartache we do not want. So we have some thoughts, like perhaps we require the buyer to have a CCW, so we have some level of comfort that they're not a felon. We're also considering going through the process of becoming an FFL. If I recall, one of your shows mentioned the process. It's not that hard. We're going to check with some local ranges to see if we can conduct sales at their range, figure it's a gun-friendly place. They can test fire it if they like. Uh, the problem we have is we do... What do we keep? Some of these things would probably uh, never spend the money for myself. We can't sell enough to cover the upfront cost. We could possibly hold on to some pretty cool items. The reality is, I want to keep all. I don't. The reality is, I want to keep it all anyway. Any thoughts are appreciated. If it makes good show content, even better. Thanks, Jack from Tom. Okay, so let's start off with the basic question: private sale of firearms to individuals. As long as your state has no prohibitions on this at the state level. And as long as you're selling to a resident of your state, that's it, you're clean. Now, let's be careful about something here. The government says that if you are a dealer, you need an FFL, no matter what, and you have to run a background check, even with a used gun, etc. Okay. And this whole idea of what a dealer is and isn't is pretty nebulous to the point where they can almost claim you're a dealer whenever they want to. So you need to be careful with how you market this, and how ongoing it is. But individual private sales are legal and kosher. It is suggested by some, and I think it's a good idea, that you guys do a bill of sale for guns. And that bill of sale say things like, I attest that I'm not a felon or what have you. I have a link to a gun organization that puts out a form that you can use. You fill out a copy. Both of you keep a copy. And this says, I sold a gun to Tom, right? And Tom, or Tom sold a gun to me. This is the gun in question. This is the serial number on it. This is the circumstances of the sale. I had no reason to believe that Tom was a, a felon at the time, or Tom had no reason to believe that Jack was a felon at the time. We are residents of the same state. I looked at his, his driver's license. It said he's a resident of Texas. So I'm good. Bye. Okay, if you sell me a gun and I go rob a liquor store with it at that point, you've done nothing wrong. There is no liability. Now, does that mean some money-hungry lawyer can't come after you and you said you should have known that Jack Spierka was a crazy survivalist who was going to rob a liquor store? No, but it's really tough. It's really tough. It, 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 it's almost impossible for them to sue the person that made the gun, let alone the person that sold the used gun that was legal under state law. right? So uh, there's been a lot of precedent with that. I'm not real worried about it. Okay, um, I would... Start out with your personal network and sell to people that you know because that's another reason to say I had no reason to believe this person's a felon. Um, if you have any doubts about a person, I would say I'm not sure here. If you still want the gun, we can do it. We'll walk it into a gun store and we'll let them run the FFL for another 15 to 20 bucks. If you, I, I just don't know, sir. I, I, I'm not sure on you for whatever reason. I got a bad vibe or whatever. Uh, you can either not buy it or you can buy it that way. Because I, I can't knowingly sell a gun to a felon, and I can't knowingly sell to a gun to anybody that shouldn't own one, and something here doesn't feel right, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult you, 
But, you know, maybe even say, you know what, I'll split the difference with you. It's going to be 20 bucks to get the guy to run the FFL. Uh, I'll pay 10 out of the price and you pay 10 out of pocket. If we were going to sell the gun for a thousand bucks, I'm going to sell it to you for 990. Anybody's going to walk the deal over 10 bucks, either wanted to buy a gun with no paperwork for whatever reason, which really doesn't make a lot of sense other than something that somebody told them on the internet, or there's a reason they don't want to do the paperwork that's not good. Right? So I'm not going to want to encumber all of my buyers with this. I have bought private sold guns many times. I've sold private guns many times. But you do not want to conduct yourself in a manner that could easily be made the case that you're now a dealer of guns. Right? That's, that's the key here. So sell a few, sell a few, sell a few type of situation. You say you want to keep them all. Well, first of all, figure out all the ones you really mean that about. And figure out with your partner here how you're going to settle up with each other. Okay? And then, you know, you can look at selling that way. If you live in a state that has a lot of gun shows, the gun show loophole is a myth, but the fact that people like to buy guns at gun shows without doing paperwork is not. And I have found that when I go to a gun show and buy a gun, I really wish the guy with the table would hold it for me under the table until I'm ready to leave because it gets to be a pain in the ass. Especially certain guns that you wouldn't even think of. Like one year I bought a little Mossberg Pump 410 and I ended up leaving the show, getting my hand stamped, locking it in my car and going back in because it got to the point of I can't take a pee in here without going, sir, do you want to sell your gun? Sir, do you want to sell your gun? So... You know, that's another thing that you can look at is going to gun shows. And don't worry so much about whether people at a table. See, the thing is, a lot of times, dealers at tables aren't real big on buying guns at gun shows. They're sitting there with 150 guns laying on a table to sell. They're not really looking to buy. They're looking to sell something really unique or special they might barter for or whatever. But the people that are there to buy are the ones walking around. And, yes, I can walk up to you and say, hey, you want to sell that? You go, yeah. And I would, and I would even, I'd have a copy of this form and say, look, I don't require any in-depth background checks or anything because it's a private sale, but a bill of sale. So we'll fill out two copies of this. We each keep a copy. I do need to see your driver's license to make sure your name is what you say it is. If you don't want to buy it, that's okay. Somebody else will. And a bill of sale means I conducted, this is why I think the bill of sale is important. It's not to legitimize the transaction. It's to record it. So let's say you sell a gun to a guy named Bill. Bill has this gun and immediately sells it to his buddy Mike. Right? Mike is a scumbag, and you had no idea Bill's, Bill's going to sell it to Mike. Mike doesn't even, or Bill doesn't even know Mike's a scumbag. Mike does something illegal with the gun. Mike throws the gun away. The cops find the gun and connect it to the crime but they don't connect it to Mike or Bill. They come to you, and you say, well, I sold that gun four months ago. Where at? At Big, Big Town Gun Show in Fort Worth. Who'd you sell it to? A guy named Bill. Bill what? I don't remember. See, there's your problem. They now have a material piece of evidence, and the last place they can put that gun is in your hands. And you have no record of when or to whom you sold the gun. Now you have a bill of sale. I sold it to this guy named Bill Thompson. Where'd you meet him? Uh, Big Town Gun Show, Fort Worth. Oh, okay. You got any proof of that? Here is a piece of paper. This has his name on it. 
His address that was on his driver's license at the time verifying he was a Texas resident and a, a signature from him stating he's not a felon. Here it is. This is his name. This is where he lives. Now, they can go to Bill and say, well, you bought a gun from this guy Tom at the Big Town Gun Show in Fort Worth. And he can say yes or no. And they can say, well, is this your signature? Oh, yeah, that gun. Well, what'd you do with it? Well, I sold it to my buddy Mike. Mike who? Mike Smith. Okay, does he sing Christian rock music and have a W for a middle initial, or is there a little more accuracy there? See, if he can't figure out where Mike is, who Mike is, what date, now it's his problem. They know this crime happened on August the 12th, and you sold the gun on May the 5th. They know who you sold it to, and they can go verify that person's real and exists. Hands off, not Tom's problem. So that's why I like a bill of sale when it comes to a firearm, and you just put that away in your strong box or whatever. Just in case that question ever comes. It doesn't have to be filed with anybody. It doesn't have to be registered anywhere. It doesn't have to go anywhere. And odds are you'll die and your kids will shred it and burn it. But if anybody ever shows up. Now, your Seiko rifle and .458 Win Mag is probably fine before I launch a cannon like that in an unmarked barrel, custom job, I'm going to probably take it to a gun dealer not a gun dealer, I'm sorry, a gunsmith, and say, you run at least a headspace on this and stuff for me and make sure you think it's okay to fire. At very least, I'm going to drop it into a lead sled, ratchet it down with ratchet straps, point it down range in a safe direction, load a round into it, tie a string to it, get back about 20 feet behind a tree and pull it. I'm going to go off and Take a look at it, make sure it ejects properly, no jammed up, you know. I, I just, without knowing who made it, without any markings, without any, like, you know, because a lot of gunsmiths will mark a barrel with, like, their signature uh, markings or something. So you can say, okay, this gunsmith is in, you know, Fort Riley, Kansas, and, and they, uh, they make, you know, guns, and they do custom work, and we know their quality. Like, I just don't trust it. And it, it's 99.9% percent chance it's fine generally stuff like this doesn't happen to guns in some guy named Bubba's workshop that blow up people's faces with that one tenth of one percent with the you know the damn you know what is it like a hundred grains of freaking black powder going off in your face there with that can't I no I, I I would at least shoot it in some sort of controlled environment where you are protected first but a gunsmith go no go gauges stuff like that Make sure it's good. That's my thoughts on this. I don't want to make it any more complicated than it is, but my my personal view is if you transfer a firearm, a hand receipt, and this includes a barter or whatever, I gave one gun to, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, it just makes sense because if it ever comes back that, you know, this gun belonged to you at some point, And it could even have been privately sold and privately sold and privately sold multiple times, and there could be multiple layers between you, and it's still possible the police will track you down. Because maybe the guy that sold it to you will remember who you are. Right? He will remember your name. Well, I sold it to Bill. They go find Bill, and Bill says, well, I sold it to Martin. And Martin says, I sold it to Jack. And they go, Jack Spirico. You know him. He lives in freaking Azle, Texas. Everybody knows where Jack Spirico lives. And they say, no, Sheriff's Department's at my door. Mr. Spirico, we want to talk to you about a gun. Now, I can say I sold it to, to, to Tom at the Big Town Gun Show because I had more guns than I needed. Tom who? I don't know. Wrong answer. 
Now, there's, it's not enough in of itself, but it's problems you don't want. Because if I can go, oh, you know what, sir, let me go get my paperwork for you. Here it is. I believe this is the gun. This is the serial number. Yep. I sold it to Tom on May the 5th, 2018 for $500. Here's his signature saying he got it. And here's his last known address according to me. I'm out. And and to me, the the... the Sleeping better at night that that gives you. And anybody that really has a problem with that, you probably don't want to do business with. I'm just saying. And let me just tell you another thing that's happened to me at gun shows where I've sold private guns and bought private guns before. Look, man, I got to ask you this before we do this thing. Go ahead. Are you a cop? Okay, first of all, No. Second of all, if I were, I don't have to tell you. Third of all, even if I am, we're not doing anything illegal. Do you have any reason to believe that what we're doing is legal right now? Because if you do, it makes me, if they're, if they're going to sell me a gun, it makes me worry about where you got that gun from in the first place. If you actually think that. Right? And if they can clear it, I just thought, you know, whatever. Okay, fine. You know. But if, if, if that makes them sketchy, I'm like, you know what? I, I don't need to do, I don't need to buy one from you. I don't need to sell one to you. Now, sometimes it's just, you know, understand how dumb people are. And people believe that if you ask a cop if they're a cop, they have to tell you or it's a trap. No, they don't. My brother-in-law's a cop. He was working sex crimes one time. And the girl said, if you really are not a cop, show me your thing. And he did. So she believed him, and they ended up making their bust. Now, I'd prefer they don't go out busting people for shit like that myself. I don't think there's a crime if we have consenting adults. But the val the validity of that point is don't think what you heard on TV is legal advice that's any that's worth anything because it's not. All right. Uh, next up from Chris. Chris says, Jack, first off, you're a jerk. I make wines and ciders and meads because of you. Now I want a business around this lifestyle. I have a YouTube channel teaching those new to winemaking how to make wines and ciders. It's going fairly well, but I want to take it to the next level and make it a lifestyle business. Maybe you can have a look and see what I can do to level up. Thanks for all you do. Chris from West Georgia, and he gives me his YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash C slash winemaker TV. So his YouTube lay, uh, handle, if you want to check out Chris's channel and subscribe to it, fellow member of your community you're part of, winemaker TV, all one word. Now, I'll be honest, Chris, I did not have time to give your channel a big once-over today when I selected this for my show, and I can only help you so much here. Okay? There's a couple reasons. One, I'm honest about my limitations. YouTube, for me, is a side funnel into my main business. I am not a YouTube guru. And I can tell you, the people that are making big strides on YouTube today, they have really great production value, really great lighting, really great audio. Right, Those are three things I do not have. I have okay audio, decent lighting, and you know my own limitations with the production value because it is a side funnel for content. So I have limits to how much I can do for you. But when I look at people that are like half a million subscribers, three-quarters of a million subscribers, a million subscribers, every video they produce is of a quality that even though maybe a producer wouldn't put it on TV, they could. So I think one of the things you really want to do with YouTube today, if you if you want the best chance, I'm not saying a person that's kind of hokey and walking around with an iPhone can't become huge, because they do, but the majority that do, do so with high quality of production value. The next thing you need is frequency. Now, I didn't check your frequency, but you have content. It's not like you put up three videos and quit. 
Um, but if you're going to do three videos a week, then it's three videos a week. It's not three videos this week, two videos the next week, one video the next week, three videos that week after that. Then five videos, try to catch up and back to one video. Whatever you're going to do, you need to do it with regularity. Uh, one of the biggest things I can tell you that I do know from working social media of various flavors especially when you're new, the best asset you have is yourself. When you are putting out videos and you have 1,500 subs, like it's about what you're at now, like about 1,500, and you're getting four or five comments on a video in a week, that's all you're getting on average. Most videos are getting four or five comments. You should respond to 100% of the comments, and if they answer you, you should respond at least one more time. And you should be, and if anybody says, I'd really like a video on how to make so and so wine, you need to make a video on how to make so and so wine. Okay? You need to do that because that is everything you have right there. You can make a living not on a thousand subscribers, but on a thousand people that love you. You can make a, you can make a living on just a thousand true fans, as that's the true fans model. And here's why. A true fan is somebody that will spend one day's wages a year. That is the accepted kind of niche market definition of a true fan. If a person makes a hundred dollars a day, you know, every work day of their life, they make a hundred dollars a day. That's their wage. If they're a true fan of yours, they'll spend a hundred dollars a year on you. You got it? That's true fan. Now, when we think about that math and the way that works out, it's not quite, it's about 333 days, right, is the way that the math works out with a third into a thousand, but it's almost a year. So with a thousand people willing to spend an average day's wages on you, you can earn an income of about, one, uh, about three annual average median salaries a year. And what's a median salary? A median salary is whatever your niche is made up of, whatever the median of your niche is. So if it's really high-income people, that's three really good salaries. If it's low-end, then it's three low-end salaries. But guess what? Three low-end salaries put together is a pretty pretty damn good living. You know, even if you're talking about your average median income there is about $40,000, you can make about $120,000 with that model. So... The, the critical key is not just having a bunch of people, but having a core of people that love you. And when they have someone that they can go to, that they get answers from, that actually gives a shit about them, that isn't just trying to add a thousand subscribers this year or this week or this day, but they're trying to really take care of the people that really love what they're doing. Then when you come up with something that you can sell for 40 or 50 bucks, those people are going to buy it. And if you can come up with two or three of those a year, And you have a thousand people that'll buy that. You have an income, right there. You're done. I'm not. You're not done as in you're finished. You're done as in you can now live off of your lifestyle income. And people want to make it way more complicated than that. Well, if I have a million subscribers and then my ad revenue and and that ad revenue is great. And if you can make the money, you should take the money. But it can all be taken away from you that fast. But when you build personal relationships, so the ne my next piece of advice is you want to get people to subscribe, yes. You want them to click the little bell on YouTube so they get an email notification, yes. But you need to be pushing them to getting direct contact with you. Come up with a quick start guide or something you can sell for $9.99. Sell it for $9.99 on Amazon, but give it away for free. 
and say, if you want my quick start guide or whatever it is, it's normally $9.99 on Amazon, here's a link to buy it on Amazon, or you can get it for free by filling out this form. It just got higher value because they could buy it somewhere. If somebody buys it, there's nine bucks in your pocket. If nobody buys it, but people subscribe, it's worth more money. Now you have them in an email list. Now you can contact them. Now you can tell them about your new videos. Now you can set up surveys. What do you want to know, etc. My next thing is, I think a channel that's only about how to make wine is limited in its potential. Find local wineries. Go to them. Find restaurants selling local wines and meats and go to them. And do content somehow integrating these other aspects of things. Ask people what they want from you and give them what they tell you they want as long as it's reasonable. Next up, watch your own videos. Watch your own videos and don't get down on yourself, but be your biggest critic. When I started this podcast, I did it in the car for a year and a half. For those that don't know, I sat in my car with a little recorder and I drove to work and I yelled at people in traffic while I did the podcast. And there were certain things that were never going to be as good as they are now in that environment, but I still strove to do the best that I could. And I would record my podcast in the morning on my way to work. I would get to my office. I would upload my podcast and hit publish. That entire exercise took about five minutes. So I had my whole rest of the day to dedicate to what I had to do for a living. When I drove home, I would download my podcast onto my iPod and eventually my iPhone. That's how old this is. That it, was iPod, it was iPod World when I started. That's how old this stuff is, right? And... I would listen to that podcast on the way home. Number one, that made sure that everything was working the way it was supposed to be. It was going out on iTunes and stuff like that. But number two, then I listened to it with the same experience that my listeners would have. And I didn't listen to it going, hey, I'm so awesome. I can't believe how good I said that. I listened to it and I went, hmm, you know what? You say all right at the end of sentences. That's not all right. That's your placeholder. And I thought, why are you doing that, Jack? Well, you've been a professional speaker for 20 years at this point of your life, and you don't sit up in front of a room going, all right, right? Yeah, all right, all right. Uh, you don't do that. Well, why are you doing it? I realize the reason I'm doing it is because I don't have an audience to, 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 to gauge whether you're getting what I'm saying, so I had to make a conscious effort to stop saying all right. And if you go back and listen to like the first 20, 30 episodes, you'll hear a lot of all rights. Or I would get really mad and I'd go, you know what, I, I was a little over dramatic there. I need to rein that back in. Or I would get mad, but I would pull back a little too much and go, you know what, that actually was, there was some more anger warranted there. I, you know, th there was things. And when I started recording at home initially, I stopped doing that. And I'm like, you, got, you can't stop doing this. Because now, yeah, you're comfortable, but you've just changed. You have a new, what, do we, what was our quote of the day? That if you... If you um, wanted to go to a next level of your life, you needed a different you. So I went from doing it in the car to doing it in the studio and realized, like, okay, so now I actually have to hold myself to a higher standard. So I started, you know, walking around my yard or whatever and listening with headphones in to the podcast from that day. Again, the way that you do when you play football in high school and they have game tape, you don't watch it and go, look how badass I am, I made that touchdown. You look for all your mistakes. So find your mistakes and then develop a plan to get better at what you do. And, and I think those are the biggest steps you can take right now. You are a baby in this. 1,500 subscribers, you are a baby. You don't even know what you're going to be yet, right? You're not even in pre-K, right? You're, 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 you're stepping up to the walker 
with a teething ring in your mouth and pushing it around the living room right now. That's not a, that's not a criticism. That's where I was a couple weeks into it when I was in the car and had a couple hundred people listening. And it's not about you individually. It's not a, I'm not making a comment on your ability because I didn't watch enough of yours to even have an opinion yet. I'm saying by the timing, by how long you've been doing this, even if you're amazing, if you're the best of anybody doing what you're doing right now, for you, it's an infancy. And so if you have an infant and they're sucking their thumb as their teeth are coming in, you're worried about them screwing their teeth up. I don't know if that's a myth or not. I never really checked into that one. But you get what I'm saying. Like The way a child is raised has a great impact on the adult they will become. Your business is a child. Your YouTube channel is a child. How you raise it will have a huge impact on the business that it becomes. That's as much as I can do as a segment uh, on the show for you today. Uh, I will be doing a presentation on lifestyle buildings at the fall workshop, and we will be taping them again, and they will be made available to MSB members. Um, next up, this comes from Alexander. He says, should we trust the, our money to the bank? My bank account is completely currently inaccessible. I am one of 5 million Chime bank users, an online-only bank. For the past 36 hours, no one has been able to receive direct deposits, use their debit card, or access their money in any way. Maybe many people on their Twitter account are talking about how they have no food because of this. No bills can be paid. Some people are even stranded because they used a rideshare app to get around and they can't get home from their destination because their cards are disabled. Luckily, I'm okay because I have some cash around and a small amount of money sitting in different accounts, but it makes me wonder, is our money safe in the banks? If 5 million people lose all their money, can FDIC really cover everyone? More info here, and it's an article on Forbes. And again, this is from Alexander in Kansas City. So let's start out with the fact that Chime Bank seems to be working again. Some customers are complaining and saying there's money missing from their accounts, etc. Uh, I think that everybody that's a Chime Bank customer will be just fine here. Um, and we got two, we actually got three real questions buried in this one question here from Alexander. First, if a bunch of banks go bankrupt, can the government really cover the FDIC insured deposits? The answer is yes for the amount they're insured for, and there's a limit on that. We won't get into it today, but that limit is well above what most people have in a bank account. Uh, and that is per bank. So if you have multiple, if you have more than that that you want to keep in regular bank accounts, then you need to be in more than one bank, which we're going to get to for other reasons anyway. Okay. So, yes, I'm not worried about that. And the reason I'm not worried about that is because the government can and will print the money And people say, well, that's going to you know, lead to devaluing the dollar and everything. Trust me, if all the banks are insolvent, we got the money's going to be worthless anyway, but you'll still have those space credits. So if you had the money then in the form of dollar bills in a box, you're in the same boat at that point. Yes, the government can cover it. The government can cover any bill that it gets, but they can't do it without consequences. But those consequences exist whether your money's in the bank or not. Okay. So I'm not saying it's all sunshine and roses. I'm just saying like that the idea that I wouldn't keep money in the bank because FDIC might not cover it's like the last reason. I'm more worried about something like this. Like my bank's not working right now. So I don't believe that Chime tried to screw anybody here. Certainly Chime didn't want this to happen. This is not good for them and not good for their reputation. And it's going to cost them customers. Um, it doesn't even matter that it's an online bank. This was a technical problem. 
And if that technical problem exists, if you go down to the local physical bank, that technical problem probably exists there too. They're not just going to give you money if they can't make their system work. Technology breaks. Okay? That's what this is about. Um, now, what is my view on this? Number one, you should be like Alexander and you should have cash. Number two, you should have more than one place that you keep money. Number three, while I used to be completely opposed to credit cards, I have changed my stance on that. I do not think you should be buying things and using credit cards to, to, to finance things. But having a credit card makes a lot of sense from a bank different than the one you keep your money in. Okay? And then that way, at least you can use, like in this situation, you're stuck because you're traveling and you can't access your funds. You can use the credit card until you can. Um, everybody should keep cash on hand. Now, I understand there's people that are making $250 a week and they can barely pay their bills. You've got other problems. Not being able to get your money out of your bank account is not the big problem you have. Not having enough money is the problem you have. I can't fix that for you. I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying you have to fix that problem separately. If you have a main bank you do business with, It makes a lot of sense to have a second bank that you keep enough money in to kind of get by for a week. And then you have a cash reserve. And then you have a credit card. That, that is the, and that is what this lesson is really all about here. And this idea that, you know, the banks are going to collapse or whatever. If the banks collapse, trying to get this through, if the banks totally collapse and the government can't cover then the cash is going to be worthless too. That's the doomsday of doomsday scenarios. It is, it is absolutely. And people say, well, in 2008 they were this close to breaking and the government covered the bill. And everybody said the world was going to end and it didn't. Now, you might have lost a lot of money if you didn't listen to me telling you to get the hell out of the stock market before it happened, which I screamed at people in the beginning. That's when I first started the show. One of the first messages I had, get out of the market, get out of the market, get out of the market. Boom, the market crashed. I got a bunch of emails. Why did the market crash? Because I told you it was going to, and here's why I said it was going to, and this is why you should have got out of the market. Um, but, yeah, I, don't, don't sweat that. This next email comes from Jim. It's another investing question. Can you clarify what silver eagles you buy? I recently heard you talk about silver and that you like silver eagles. But I just went to Jam Bullion, and there are several kinds of silver eagles, some with an acronyms, and the price ranges are all over the place. I don't care about numismatic value. I'm looking for price per ounce, right? I know it depends on what my intent is. Maybe I don't want to collect some rare pieces, but all those different SEs through me. Can you help clarify so I and the rest of this audience can make a better decision? Thanks for all you do. Yada, yada, really thanks, Jim. Okay, so silver eagles are going to be a little different than, a, than like if you're buying half dollars and stuff like that that are actually circulated currency like pre-65 silver coins and stuff like that because almost every American silver eagle you're going to buy is going to be considered brilliant uncirculated because Silver eagles don't circulate. That doesn't mean nobody ever dropped one and put a ding in the rim or something like that. And um, They might take a little bit of value off of them here and there. But the reality is silver eagles trade on the fact that they are uh, U.S. government produced one ounce silver coin of a known purity. So what do I buy? If I'm going to buy from JM Bullion, I'm sitting on their website right now, um, and if I pull up American silver eagles, 
The first thing listed is a 2019 one ounce silver American Eagle, brilliant uncirculated, $20.03. I had no problem with that. I'll buy that all day long. Most of the other silver eagles on their different years are like $20.53, $21.23. About the only year that you're going to see where the price really goes up, I believe, is 86. Because I think 86 was the first year that they were made. Uh, and that sells at somewhat of a premium. Um, there's a couple other years that are harder to find, like 94, I think, um, and 86 seem to be the two that stick in my head that you might um, pay more for. And I'm not going to pay more for them. Of course, I have a couple of them, so you know, it's easy not to pay more for them when you already have them. But the second one listed, one ounce American Silver Eagle coin, random year. $19.93. So it's 10 cents less to get a random year than a 2019, which is about the cheapest because they're being made right now. If I'm buying one or two or a dozen, I don't really care. I'm not making a decision over 60 cents. If I'm buying a lot of them, that's what I'm buying. I'm buying the cheapest thing that's an American Silver Eagle because I'm going to get paid about the same for all of them. I might pay a little more for some, but I'm going to get paid about the same by a dealer for all of them except some of those off years and stuff like that. But, you know, the way that you look at this, if you're stacking Silver Eagles, my my approach has been over the years, in 2017, I buy 2017s, and 2018s, I buy 2018s, 2019s, I buy 2019s, and so on. And, and the reason that I do that is if any of them ever turn out to have some sort of numismatic value, well, then that just happened. So I bought Silver Eagles all the way back in 1994, and I have quite a few of those 1994 ones. And if somebody really wants to pay me a lot more for them and I want to sell them, well, great. But I'm not going to go buying them today because I don't really care about numismatics either, especially when we're talking about bullion. Numismatics, for those that aren't familiar with the term, that means you're buying something for collector value in addition to its underlying value. So if I buy a Franklin half dollar, for instance, let's just talk about what the price of a Franklin half dollar can be. Just a, a regular kind of a very good grade, you know, so that you can read all the letters and you can read all the numbers and you can see Franklin's hair in the in the picture on the front and it's very clear uh, Liberty Bell with the crack and all in it on the back. So it, lo it looks like you, know, you can tell exactly what it is. You know, might sell for about seven to eight dollars. Um, uh, whereas you might be paying ten dollars for something that's about uncirculated. Maybe you're paying eleven dollars for something that is brilliant uncirculated. Then it can go into the, uh, you know, mint state. Various, you know, mid state 63, mid state 64, etc. And the finest examples, you might find a, a Franklin half dollar selling for hundreds of dollars. That's really not any different than the one you can buy for seven dollars, except it looks nicer and it's a certain year, or a certain strike, or something like that. Then you get into proofs and frosting and cameos and all this other stuff that people like. I got nothing against it. I'm not putting my money there in any significant value, though. So when, when you're looking at a lot of coins that are made that were designed to be currency, there's a real premium on those coins being beautifully uncirculated, mint state, etc., because there's not very many of them, and something's valuable because it's rare. When it comes to a brilliant uncirculated silver eagle, they're all brilliant uncirculated unless somebody beat one up for some reason. Why? Because the mint makes them and sells them to collectors. 
Nobody buys them and carries them around in their pocket and spends them. So I'm not, I'm not, if I'm gonna go numismatic, then I'm gonna go something that's actually rare, hasn't been created uh, in, in a view of artificial scarcity. So if you want to see people selling you shit you shouldn't buy, watch the, the home shopping channels where they're like, this is the Cameo Proof State Mint State 70 PCGS graded American Silver Eagle. Look at this, it's beautiful, and there's a thousand of them only here. Like, that just means they spent the money to have somebody grade them and put them in a slab. Now, if you buy it from that guy, you're overpaying. I don't have to look at what it is. I know already you're overpaying. But even if you buy from legitimate people, you're going to find it's very hard to sell those things for anything close to what you paid for them unless they go up significantly in value. Now, that's all silver to a degree. If you go buy silver today, you know, uh, uh, you know if you're paying, let's say that silver eagles are selling for 18 bucks flat. You're probably going to sell them for about $16.50, $16.75 on the same day. Why? Because the guy selling the coin has to make money. And I, it amazes me people can't understand this. So let's say that I'm selling American Silver Eagles for $20. Bucks, and you come to me and say, well, you're selling for $20. Bucks. I got 10 of them. I want $200. And I say, well, you know, I, I, I want a nicer mustache and a supermodel for a wife or whatever it is that that person wants. I want a Ferrari, right? I want You want one hand crap and the other see which one fills up first. If I did pay you, you know, $200 for your, your 10 Silver Eagles, unless I get lucky and they go up in value tomorrow to $22, how do I make any money? So I have to pay you less than I'm selling for. That's the, that's the metal industry. Every dealer pays less than they sell for or they go out of business. And it's still risky because what happens if I do a lot of buying today at 18 bucks? Well, I'm selling at 20, but I'm doing a lot of buying while I'm not doing a lot of selling. And then the market drops to $18. I'm sitting on an awful lot of inventory that if I sell, I'm at a break-even, which means I'm losing money. It's a tough industry. So that means you have to be tough when you go into it. When it comes to stacking, I'm looking for the best price that I can get all the time without getting stupid about it. I'm not making a choice over, you know... 20 cents if I would really prefer to have something else per unit. Because when I sell, I'm not going to ever worry about that 20 cents. Okay? So that's that's what you want to be doing there. Next up, I wanted to talk a little bit. I'm going to be brief on this one because we're getting long in the episode. But Eric sent me this thing. He said, I heard you say that elk were once all over the United States. Maybe there will be again. In 2001, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and National Park Service and other parties joined together with wild elk in the Smoky Mountains and the Catahoochee Valley near Maggie Valley. The initial uh, 52 elk were released and have grown in the herd to almost 200. Attached are a few pictures taken from my car on a trip to uh, uh, GSM National Park. And this is in Maggie Valley, and this is Eric in Georgia. So uh, I'm guessing that means these elk are in Georgia. I know there's elk in Kentucky. I know there's elk in Tennessee. I know there's elk in Arkansas. I know there's elk in Pennsylvania. I think they reintroduced elk to parts of New York. And I'm sure there's many other states that elk have been reintroduced to. And this is, this is one of those things that I say, unless we do some other things, the concept that we're going to have large, healthy elk herds approaching anything like we had prior to 
settlement of the North American continent by Europeans without some really difficult decisions about where people live and how resources are going to be managed is a wonderful fiction. And while we can do what, and we should do as much as we can, don't take that the wrong way. But what I'm trying to explain that people don't get is there were elk in Maine, there were elk in Florida, there were elk in California, and there were elk in Washington State. I don't know what else you're looking for with elk to say that elk were pretty much throughout the United States of America as we know it today. Okay? There were elk, lots of elk, all over the place. There were also no roads as we think of them, right? The roads were not built yet because there was no state, therefore there could not have been a road, right? Uh, but there were no roads that we think of. There were no real fence systems. There were no cattle operations. There were no sheep operations. There were no goat operations. There were no major metropolitan cities. There were no interstates with massive amounts of rapid traveling vehicles, etc. And while the United States has a lot of wilderness today, elk are a unique critter. Where they can live versus where they want to live and they live peacefully and happily and do really well is very, very different. You can create a reserve and put elk on it, and if you feed them, they'll be fine. But elk are a semi-migratory animal, meaning that if you put elk in a place, they don't stay there. And what elk need to do well, and a lot of people think it's mountains, and they do really well in mountainous environments, but it's more the dynamic that mountains create for elk. Elk want a mix of timber and open space. There's times of the year that they want to be grazing heavily on grass. You know, they, they, they want to be out in the open, and there's times where they move into the timber for shelter and for different food sources during different times of the year. And if you go anywhere that there's lots of elk, you see this natural movement. One of my favorite places in the world is called Estes Park. It's right outside of Rocky Mountain National Park. The elk aren't health, hunted there. And because of that, the elk are damn near tame to the point where they can actually be dangerous if you're stupid, and some people are stupid. And you see these elk when they get into where they're rounding up their harems and the bulls are getting a certain number of cows together and defending them. They spend a tremendous amount of time down in the fields. And once the breeding's done, they move up into the timber. And if people say, well, they go up in elevation. Yeah, but they're going there because that's where the timber is. They're going there for shelter. They're going for because there's feed that's available there for browse. When the fields are covered in snow, they need to have that movement. So the next thing to understand is there, I think, I could be wrong, but I believe there is only one species of elk left in the United States. I know there were at least two other species. The ones that were in like the northeast in Pennsylvania, Virginia and all had kind of like spots on their ass. I can't remember what they were called, but they were a totally different species of elk that is extinct. Just like they almost made the bison extinct, that particular elk has been made extinct. It is gone forever unless some scientist someday clones them. Well, they're gone. They were a little bit smaller, and they were more adapted to that area than the, the elk of the Rocky Mountain area that we have now, which are the elk that are being reinduced everywhere in the country because that's what we have left. These are big animals. You know, they're as big as cows. Now, you're talking about cows running around wild, some of them with giant horns on their heads that attack each other and get violent over defending their girl cows. 
That's what you have with elk. If you hit a deer, you mess up your car. If you hit an elk traveling at high speed, you mess up your whole life. If we are going to have elk come back to anything approaching what they were, we have to change how human settlements work. Because you're talking about a semi-migratory animal that weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Now, I'm not putting down the reestablishment work that's being done. But unless we make some real changes with how the whole country's managed, you're going to stick into a situation where in a place like Georgia or Arkansas, there's you know a few dozen to at maximum a few hundred people a year that get drawn out of a lottery to get to do some elk hunting. And the purpose of that isn't so people can hunt elk. It's to manage the herd at a size where it can exist in an artificial bubble that we created for it. This is why we're never bringing back the buffalo. There's Buffalo have been reintroduced lots of places. There are places right now you can put in for a lottery, you can draw a permit, and you can hunt wild buffalo. You don't have to go to a preserve to do it. You just have to get lucky and draw a license. This I know it exists in Alaska. Okay? Um... But you can't have herds of hundreds of thousands of giant animals migrating across the Midwestern United States with an interstate highway system and barbed wire. For all of the blame that the government gets, and justly so, for killing the buffalo off intentionally to starve out Native Americans, it was railroads, roads, and barbed wire that made it impossible for the buffalo to exist as it did, to a lesser degree that applies to um, elk. And it's hard to see that when you look at how much space there is, but they don't, see, elk don't go, oh, you know, they put us here, and there's plenty of stuff here, so this is where we belong, and we'll stay here. As that herd gets bigger, and those bulls start fighting with each other, You know, and that seven by seven beats the snot out of that young four by four. He's like, hey, if I can convince a couple of these cows to slink off with me, we can head over that way. And if I get far enough away from him, he'll leave me alone. And as I grow up, I can grow my herd, my harem, and I can defend it. And that's how they increase the range. And it's not long before they increase the range into a place where, gee, there's a semi truck. What's that? Okay? Oh, gee, there's a housing development. And you might think it's cool that you have elk walking through your housing development, but a lot of other people won't. We, we are in a totally different world today, and restoring the systems to what they were is not totally doable. And it's why we need to take the form of agriculture we're using and mimic what was in so many ways. So what thrives? This is an interesting thing for you hunters. right? You should get an answer to this almost immediately. When you take semi-migratory and migratory animals that require massive amounts of space to live naturally and you change their environment so that they don't do well, but you don't totally destroy all wilderness and woods, you do what we've done in the United States, which is actually remarkable except for you know the true urban sprawl, how much woods is left, even where lots of people live, what species types grow in number? And the answer is edge species. What we've done is we've we've taken away this massive wandering space 
And we've created massive amounts of undulating edge around human settlement. And what is an edge species that's closest to the elk? The white-tailed deer. And this is one of the things people also do not understand because they think back into the colonial days or pre-colonial days, first settlers, first mountain men, how much game there was. I'll tell you what there wasn't as much of. Deer. And all the deer. Mule deer, black tail, white tail, you name it. There was not as many deer as there are today. There were far less deer because there were far more elk and bison. Because the deer thrive in the edge. They don't really migrate. A white tail might go long miles. But in general, most whitetails grow and live in about a one to four mile radius of where they're born. Elk, they cover that in a day when they're on the move, without even moving fast. So just understand that all of these efforts, as great as they are, and while we should do as much of it as we can, they will always be limited. And if we're ever going to really restore the ecology that was created by elk and bison. And prior to that, megafauna in this, in this space. We're going to have to do it with systems that mimic, which is rotational grazing built on civopasture savanna mimics. If you want to save the planet, that is your only real move if you want to do it by restoring the ecology of this place and still feed people, and still have the life that people have come to expect here. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you, you can help support this show and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there, whenever you're going to do your online shopping, no matter what you buy, you will help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. You can see all of my reviews of items on Amazon, and i got a great one for you today. This is an awesome one. Today I have for you the Oster 22-quart roaster oven. I'm bringing this around because October is almost over. That means we go to November, and the number one thing people think about in November is Thanksgiving and cooking a giant turkey. These things are awesome. You can cook a turkey perfectly in one of these things. And all but the biggest turkeys, unless you're raising broad-breasted bronze turkeys to 30 pounds or more, the biggest turkey will fit in here no problem. And you can roast your turkey and keep your oven open. We use these things for everything, though. We use them for the workshops. I've cooked six pork shoulders in one at one time, slow cooked, on low temperature. You can cook at high temperatures. It's basically an oven you can plug in. One thing i got to say about this, it's not a big crock pot, and you can't treat it like one. It is not low draw. There's a lot of heat that comes out of these. They heat up quickly. So if you turn the heat way up in one of these and think you're going to slow cook something, you're going to burn the shit out of it. And number two, if you try to put, plug two of these into just about any single circuit in your home, they're going to trip a breaker. They're, they're a high-draw item. So if you're going to plug in two of them, because we'll plug in two or three of them during a workshop to feed that many people, they all got to go on different circuits or they're going to trip breakers. But you want to check this thing out, and you can also check out they have liners for them. And they're like a high-temperature plastic liner. And you put them in there, you put your food in the liner, and then when you're done cooking, you just rip the liner out and throw it away. You don't have to clean up. Uh, I have a link to where you can find them on uh, Amazon, but I think you'll find they're cheaper at the grocery store. Just want to put that out. The other thing you can do with these things, too, especially if you'll put a, a rack in them so you're not directly against the metal. If you get something like a browning bag and put something inside a browning bag inside one of these and bake inside it, man, you... It just comes out great. But, you know, whether it's a big turkey for Thanksgiving, a big ham for Christmas, when you want to do all your sides, have that oven back and reclaim your oven space, and you're going to be putting that turkey in there for four, six hours, something like that, 
you have this thing sit on a counter somewhere, it takes care of that, and everything is just back to where you can have your space back. Love these things. Check them out again. You can find it and everything I recommend at tspaz.com. And again, I want you to understand, it will cook things up to 450 degrees. This is not a big crock pot. All right, with that, let me uh, talk about our song of the day real quick and wrap things up here. Song of the day today is by Queen. The song is called Scandal. Uh, Brian May wrote this song, and it was because of the, how the tabloids in, in Britain were treating his relationship with his wife at the time, I believe was the case. And So this is about the kind of scandal headlines that the media creates all the time. Um, I can understand if I were like that level of celebrity instead of like the Z-list celebrity that I am, uh, that uh, I'd probably get upset if my life was in the tabloids all the time or something like that. I can understand that. What I really don't understand is how it's even a thing, though. The fact that people even care. You know, so-and-so celebrity said this, or so-and-so's ass is bigger. So-and-so's ass is smaller. So-and-so's in a few with so-and-so. The, the level, you know, we always hear about privilege. Privilege, right? Privilege, and, and, and the pronouns we're supposed to use to describe somebody who made up some bullshit about who they are, and it's privilege that you don't think you need to or whatever, and privilege, privilege, privilege. Um, the society as a whole lives in a state of privilege where you have time to care about how big a Cardassian's ass has gotten. The fact that you have time to worry about the opinions of people that do not affect your life. The fact that you have time to worry about the dietary habits or the sexual uh, habits or the marital relationship of people that would not piss on you if you were burning shows that our society has dramatic privilege. And, and I don't mean that the way that a lot of people throw that word around. I mean it in that that's how many of our problems have been solved. That's how many problems that we've had solved in this world. We have time to worry about who the hell Brian May is married to. I don't care. I don't know. I don't want to know. So-and-so is gay or so-and-so isn't gay. I don't care. Are they related to me? Do they pay my bills? I don't care. The, the, the fascination with royal watching in America, you know, the prince of whatever married the princess of this, and why do you care? They have literally no effect on your life. And I have my own indulgences. How will the Steelers do next weekend when they come off the bye? Probably shitty. It won't change my life, and I'll pay attention to it a little bit. But it's because I'm privileged. I am privileged, and so are you. And so is almost everybody in the world today, in the modern world. Because, trust me, if I was worried that if I don't get a deer this week, my family won't eat, I wouldn't have time to worry about what the score of the Steelers was, or who Prince Harry may or may not have had sex with. Or I, I, I wouldn't. So this song to me just points to, and this is not new, this is an old, this is like 89 or something, like one of the last songs Queen released before Freddie Mercury passed away. Um, but it just, it just says to me the fact that this is a thing, has been a thing, and is still a thing, is how easy life really is. And why maybe we should be grateful for that and a little less concerned about these other things. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.